0: Before we get started this morning, we're going to go to Acts chapter 19, as Brian mentioned. So if you've got a Bible and would like to go there, please feel, to, feel free to flick to Acts chapter 19. The verses will be on the screen as well if you don't have one, so don't feel you're going to miss out if you haven't brought a Bible with you this morning. Before we start, I just want to say a quick word of thank you to those who've been laboring this weekend uh, on the office. We've had a, a bit of a disaster trying to rip up carpet and have really cool polished concrete floors. Uh, and so Brian and Tara have uh, been gathering a team of people to do some renovation work there. So I just want to thank those of you who have been working hard this weekend. We'll continue to work hard today and maybe Monday as well. So thank you to those, to Brian and Tara and the team who are helping do that. It's a massive blessing. All right, let's go. Acts chapter 19, I'm going to pray for us and we get, we're going to get stuck into the word. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who is infinitely powerful God, there is no city that is beyond your saving power. There is no culture that you cannot redeem and change and restore. Father God, we pray this morning as you speak to us, pray, Father, that I would decrease, that Jesus would increase, and that we would be radically transformed by your word. Fill us, Father, with gospel confidence. Would you... Refresh our faith this morning to believe that you are the God who can and has transformed cities for your glory. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 19, if you want to go there, um, should I read the whole thing? We're going to read a fairly large chunk of scripture this morning, but um, maybe let's just read from verse 8 and I'll stop when... I feel like I've read too much. So let's start. Chapter 19, verse 8 says this, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I don't know why they said this. I adjure you oh, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the, re- the residents of Ephesus, both. Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practised magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. And prevail mightily. If you've been ar- around Anchor for anything more than maybe uh, even a week or two, you would hopefully have heard our vision because we keep ranting about the vision and it's important. And so I, I want to share it with you again. It's kind of hard to miss, but we see a church that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. And we want to do that in three ways by living in community. On mission for Jesus. But let me just go to the back to the very first bit of that vision. We see a church that transforms our city. The question is, is that vision too lofty? Is it is it naive to think that the city of Sydney could possibly be transformed by the gospel of Jesus? I mean, am I just overly optimistic? Am I naive? Have I misjudged things? Is this really possible, that we could see a city transformed? Well, What I want to do this morning is walk you through Acts chapter 19 and show you a city where gospel transformation has taken place, not only just citywide, but even region-wide, way outside of the walls of the city of Ephesus. But I want to preface it by saying this, there is a danger in taking Acts and just making it a case study and saying, if we do these things, then this will happen in our city as well. So these verses that we're looking at this morning are very different from the verses we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at promises from the scriptures that God has made about his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus says that the progress of the gospel is certain. He has resourced the mission and the Gentiles will listen. All of those things are concrete promises that God has made in his word. But what we have this morning is a historical account of events that took place in one city that may not necessarily take place in our city and in our time. But it is how God has often worked in history In the cities of this world, and it is my prayer and hope that this is how God would work in our city as well. But let me just give you a bit of background into the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a large port city right on the water in what is now modern day Turkey. It had a population of about 250,000 people, making it the fourth largest city in the world of its time. It was at the beginning of the the trade route, which was known as the Roman Road, which was their highway system from where all of their trade and goods would be ferried out and shipped out to the surrounding regions. It was a city of great wealth. Archaeology has uncovered a number of very lavish terrace houses in the city of Ephesus. It's home to the grandiose theater, which actually uh, appears in Acts chapter 19. Uh, The Grandiose Theatre had a seating capacity of 24,000 people. That's huge. We don't even have venues in our city that big. We do, but there are some venues in our city that don't even come close to seating 24,000 people. It was huge, and it hosted cultural events and art events and sporting events for its city and its region. At the centre of the city was the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It no longer stands today. There is simply a solitary pillar that marks the place where it used to be. The city of Ephesus and the temple of Artemis was the home of uh, the Greek goddess who was worshipped there, Artemis, who was depicted by a multi-breasted statue. She was the goddess of fertility and the people came to worship her in the hope that they would bless their family with lots of children and grandchildren. Ephesus was a deeply religious city and its religious importance even shaped its economy. As people would come to the city of Ephesus, they would purchase small shrines that they would take to the temple for a blessing and then take them home for their own personal worship. And that created a bunch of trade and infrastructure and economy around the worship at this temple. Ephesus is a large, important wealthy, commercially significant, and deeply religious city. And it's into this city and this culture that the gospel radically transforms and turns this city upside down. Paul has visited Ephesus a number of times, but it's on his third missionary journey that he stops and he spends more time there than any other city. And we pick up the story in 19 verse 8. I want to go back to verse 8 and read again for you. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is, evil of the church of the Christians, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard The word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There are two factors that led to citywide transformation here in Ephesus. The first is there was bold and persuasive preaching of the gospel. And the second is that there was abundant sowing of the word. As was Paul's custom in almost every city he went to, he went first to the synagogue, the place where the Jews gathered to worship. And for three months, He boldly preached the gospel there. And it says in verse 8 that he reasoned and he persuaded. That's a feature of Paul's preaching ministry. You see it time and time again. Paul reasoning and persuading in Thessalonica before he gets to Ephesus. In Acts chapter 17 verse 2 it says this. And Paul went in and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Or you go to the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, it says this, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Persuasion and reason and logic is a part of Paul's preaching ministry. He knows his audience. His audience is skeptical Jews who believe that he has moved from being a rabbi to a cult leader. His audience is cultured Greeks who believe that the message of Christianity is nothing but foolish and dumb and illogical, that you would have a king who would die on a cross. And so Paul attempts to reason and prove from Scripture and show from logic that these things are true and real and believable. You know, I think our culture is vastly similar to the Greek culture of the time. The culture in Sydney where most people would believe that Christianity is illogical, dumb, a myth. It's very similar to what the Greeks believed about the Christian message. And so we need to be ready and we need to be willing to engage with people at that level, to be able to answer the objections that they have to our faith. It means we need to be people who are ready to do the hard work of research, of reading, of reading books, of <coughs> excuse me, watching videos and listening to sermons and equipping ourselves to be able to answer people, to give them a reason for the hope that we have. Because we live in a vastly skeptical age. And so one of the things that we need to do is to attempt to persuade. Christianity is not blind faith without any reason, good reason for faith. It is based on historical evidence. Now, that's not all we do. Because if all we do is just preach apologetics at people, all apologetics does is just shut down arguments against belief and faith. And without the gospel, people will never come to know Jesus. Additionally, persuasion, like Paul does here, is not Bible bashing and just shoving the truth down people, people's throats. This is loving, logical discussion. You know, sometimes I think we forget that the gospel broke into a culture that was hugely anti-Christian. The church was on the margins of society. Christians were considered atheists or in a cult. And Paul does not get the head start that the rest of history gets. If anyone had tough soil, it's Paul. He preaches into a culture that that does not believe, accept his message at all. What, What I'm trying to show you here is that the gospel changes a culture that is further down the track than Sydney in 2015. Did you know that In Australia, a few years ago, Olive Tree Media did some research, and they found that 43% of people believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's astonishing. I mean, does does that statistic surprise you? It surprised me when I thought it would have been like 5%. 43% of people believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Additionally, a further 74% believe that God exists. Those are some pretty good stats, right? We've got a good foundation to begin with to have a discussion about who this God is that three-quarters of the people in our city believe. The gospel radically transforms cities that are way further away from the Christian worldview than Sydney is in 2015. I remember talking to a girl that I was working in an office with um, temporarily last year. And we got chatting and she said to me, look, I... I can't believe in Christianity. I can't believe in your faith because of two things. Firstly, I can't believe in the resurrection because that just does not happen. And secondly, I can't believe that all of the other religions could possibly be wrong. And I think they're all right and leading to the same thing. And we had a bit of a discussion. We went back and forth. I was able to share for her why I believed the things that I believed She was surprised that they were grounded in some logical thinking. I gave her a copy of Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, because he set out to prove the resurrection wrong, and in the process got saved, became a Christian. And she took them away, and and I, I don't know if she read them or not, but we need to be willing to offer reasons for the hope that we have. So that's the first thing. There is bold and persuasive preaching. Paul is seeking to change people's minds about who Jesus is. The second thing is this that Paul sows the word abundantly. He arrives at the synagogue and for 3 months preaches there and after he leaves he moves to the hall of Tyrannus which is probably a school hall that he hires out. And in the city of Ephesus there was kind of like this siesta time in the middle of the day from that's me keep knocking my thing I'm sorry. from 11am to 4pm the city kind of stopped. And Paul seized a cultural opportunity to hire this hall out and speak the gospel every single day for two years. Now, if that's true, that means he preached 730 sermons in two years. I don't know how he found time to prepare any of those sermons, because that's a lot of preaching every day. And chances are he probably wasn't preaching like this, where he spent 20 hours preparing a message and then delivered it. It was probably more dialogue, back and forth, conversational. And it seems like it went for a number of hours. But Paul preached. And Luke tells us it was so effective that in verse 10, all, all the residents of Asia heard the word of God. That's a massive amount of people. Not just the city of Ephesus. All of the cities and towns around this city heard the word of the Lord. This is a season where Paul sent out missionaries and church planters Ephesus became kind of like the epicenter of Christian ministry and work as they were sent out from there. Chances are, historical scholars think that the, the churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, you know, Thyatira and Sardis and all of those other ones, chances are they were planted during this season. This is a season of wonderful fruit for the kingdom of God as Paul preaches the gospel abundantly. You know, I think we're familiar with the phrase, you reap what you sow. And there's a number of nuances to that phrase. But one of the nuances is this. If you, reap, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If farmer sows two seeds, he cannot expect to reap a bountiful crop. But if he sows seed everywhere abundantly, the chances of him reaping a bountiful crop are much higher. And I think the same is true for our mission. If we simply sow the seed once, we cannot expect to see thousands of people coming to know Jesus. But if we sow the seed and speak the gospel abundantly, there is a far greater chance of people hearing that message, believing it, and coming to faith in Christ. Now, that's not a formula. That's not cause and effect. It's simply a principle. The more you sow, the greater the chance of reaping. And so there is bold and persuasive preaching of the gospel and there is abundant sowing of the word that lead to a city being transformed. Thirdly, God is at work. God shows up and does his thing. Have a look at verse 11. This is what it says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. God was at work, validating the preaching of the gospel. He was doing things, signs and wonders that pointed to Jesus. And you notice it's not even Paul. Like, he's not even there when some of these miracles happen. They take an apron that touched him or a piece of cloth and people get healed. Now, to be fair, these miracles are extraordinary. They're they're actually unusual, even for the Bible itself. You don't see this stuff happening, even the ministry of Jesus so I'm not going to say, let's take these verses, build a TV ministry of sending 20 centimeter cloths to people so that they would get healed. But, so what is happening here? What, why, why are these extraordinary events in the city of Ephesus? Ephesus was a city that was steeped in magic, in pagan worship and the occult. And so I think what's happening here is that God is making a statement about the gospel. That's probably why when you read the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to this church in this city, there is so much mention of the principalities and the powers because this city knew so much of the darkness of the evil realm. God is making a statement here. Why why did things go crazy and blow up in this city? Well, yes, there was abundant, bold proclamation of the gospel, but in the end, God showed up. He worked miracles. He drew people to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. He validated the message of the gospel in miraculous ways. It's why it's important for us to be a church that prays, because it's his work. It's why we spent five weeks preaching on the topic of prayer, because we don't want to believe the lie that this is somehow about us. Gospel confidence, as Brian mentioned earlier, is not about our strategies and our methods and our systems, but about God doing his thing and about us clinging to God's promises in that. But you notice there that God is even at work when imposters think that his power is just some magic trick to be manipulated. Do you, you see that? Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus. ...whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You know you've lost a fight when you flee both naked and wounded, right? That's not a good win for these guys. They've had their butts whooped literally by a demon or this man who had a demon in them. And this becomes known in the city of Ephesus. See, even when people try and manipulate God's power, use it for their own evil purposes, and it seems like evil triumphs. God takes these events and he uses them for his purposes. Verse 17 tells us there that this was made known throughout the whole region and the name of Jesus was made famous in that city because he is more powerful than these people. There is bold, persuasive, abundant preaching. God shows up and he does his thing. And then thirdly, the third factor that led to citywide transformation is that there is a deepening understanding of how the gospel affects every corner of their life and a deepening godliness and commitment to put Jesus first. Have a look at verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers, that is, the Christians in this city, in the church, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You know, when you take your phone and you sync it with your computer, what, what it does is it takes all of the apps and the music and the things that are on your computer and your phone and it, it blends them together so that both devices have all of the same things on it. And what these Christians in this church have done is that they, they've taken their culture and their faith and they've just synced the two together. They've blended their belief in the magic arts with their faith in Jesus. It's called syncretism. But these events, the seven sons of Sceva fleeing naked and wounded, have caused the people of this church for the first time to realize that there is a difference between the power of God and these, miracle, these, these magic books that they use. And they recognize that these come from the evil one, and this is the true power of God. And so their response is to come in confession and repentance. And they bring their magic books and their paraphernalia, and they burn it in the sight of all. And it says there that the value of it was 50,000 pieces of silver. In Australian dollars terms, that is around $6 million worth of paraphernalia that gets burnt. It's a strong statement of what repentance and confession and change transformation looks like within the church. You know, one of the, um, the, the, the very first message that we preached at Anchor had this idea at the heart of it. That if we want to see a gospel awakening in our city, it first needs to begin in our hearts, in our church. If we want to see the city transformed by the message of Jesus, that message ought to be transforming us and changing us. I wonder what the things are that we are sinking with our faith and our culture. What are the idols that we continue to cling to and think that Jesus doesn't mind? Because Jesus will always strip the church of her idols before he begins to work on the worlds. The gospel needs to transform here. Verse 20, the result of deepening godliness, of an understanding that the gospel affects every corner of their life, is this. The word of God continued to increase and prevail. The word of God continued to go out. There's a beautiful contrast here between magic books that are burnt and destroyed and the word of the Lord growing and prevailing and increasing. You know, history has told us that in revivals where a love for the Scriptures is not nurtured, often the fruit disappears as quickly as it came. But in revivals where a love for the Scriptures is nurtured and and stirred up, often the fruit remains far longer in comparison to revivals where it hasn't. Throughout the book of Acts, You see this phrase cropping up time and time again. The word of the Lord continued to grow. The word of the Lord continued to prevail. So here are three factors that have led to citywide transformation. The first is that there is bold, abundant proclamation of the gospel. The second is that God showed up and did his thing. And the third, the third is that the church itself began to see the implications of the gospel in their life. What is the impact on a city when that kind of thing happens? What happens to a city when a number of factors like that begin to take place in the city? Well, let's have a look at verse 23 of chapter 19. I'm going to read a a fairly large chunk because I I want you to get the flow of the narrative to see the flow and effects of this kind of thing happening in a city. So Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many away, saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. There is danger, not only that in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Interestingly, I wonder there in Demetrius' heart what's more important to him, his money or his God? And you notice also that Artemis' magnificence is dependent on whether or not people would worship her. The God of the Bible, his glory does not change whether people worship him or not. He is glorious. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged, were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theatre. That's the grandiose theatre, 24,000 seat theatre dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of, the, of, uh, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Talk about repetition. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus. Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who neither are sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What happened in this city? The gospel hit their back pocket. That's what happened. The gospel hit their back pockets. Such was the change that the culture stopped buying these little shrines of Artemis to take to the temple to be blessed and then take home for their personal worship. And Demetrius has got an overstock of these idols that he's creating. And I can imagine it's probably fairly difficult to have a sale on idols. Like 50% off an idol. Two for one. Like, is that even part? Can you sell idols at a discount? He's got a backlog. The other tradesmen have a backlog. And what is the reason? What is the cause of this? Verse 26, it tells us the message of Paul is convincing people that Jesus is worthy of worship and not these statues. The effect of the gospel here is that it literally throws the whole city into this riotous outroar. The gospel's impact is profound. It affects the city economically, economically. It even affects the whole region. The gospel will always strike at the heart of a city's idolatry. It will always strike at the heart of a city's idolatry. Their money, their careers, their worship, their idols. You know, I I long for the day when brothels might be closed across this city because men fall under the conviction of the Spirit and instead of running to prostitutes, would be faithful to their wives and families. I hope we see that in our time. I long for the day. long for the day when the porn industry would have to shut down websites and stop selling magazines because no one is visiting and buying them. Along for the day where pokey machines would no longer be a source of destruction to families because people are addicted and slap away their income in a number of hours. Along for the day when repentance is seen in the church and outside of the church that leads to cities being radically transformed because this message has taken root. That's the kind of transformation we speak of when we say we see a church that transforms a city by making disciples of Jesus. That's what we want to see. Now you might think, you know what, that's ridiculous, that's naïve. That's unrealistic, but I can't help but think it's possible based on the promises of God that we saw last week, based on what we've seen God do in the Scriptures. I can't help but think that that is possible. Gospel confidence is this. God can and God has radically transformed whole cities. God both can and He has radically transformed whole cities with the message of the gospel. That's gospel confidence. I'll give you a couple of examples in history of that taking place. New York City, 1856. The Fullerton Street Revival happened when a a guy called Jeremiah Lamphere began a prayer meeting at the Fullerton Street Chapel He started a prayer meeting. He advertised it. He put flies around the city and six men came half an hour late and prayed for half an hour. The next week or the next day, about 20. And then about October of 1957, he had about 30 people praying. On the 14th of October, a financial crisis hit North America and sent the whole country into total chaos. Banks closed. There was huge job losses. And soon there were 3,000 people praying every day. By April of 1858, there were more than 10,000 people praying daily for North America and for the city of New York. In the years of 1956 to 1959, in the space of three to four years, Protestant denominations across North America recorded a growth of about half a million people in three to four years. Revival broke out across that country. Or you fast forward a couple of decades later and you get to Wales in 1904. A guy called Evan Roberts began a prayer meeting for young people. God had given him a vision that 100,000 people across Wales would come to know Jesus. And they began to pray. And in June of 1905, that vision had well and truly come to fruition. Over 100,000 people had come to faith in Jesus in the space of eight months in the country of Wales. So uh, wonderful was the impact across that city, that there are stories of revival that broke out amongst the miners, the, the laborers of the day. And they used to motivate the horses in the mines to work by swearing at them and beating them. But when the miners got saved, they no longer swore, they no longer beat the horses, and so productivity in the mines actually slumped. They felt it economically. Furthermore, there were stories of judges who simply just shut courtroom doors because there were no cases to hear. The crime rate rapidly plummeted in Wales in 1905, all because of the effect of a church that got on its knees, proclaimed the gospel, and God worked. I remember sitting in the band room at the Roxbury Hotel around about this time last year, listening to Pastor Tim Chaddock share the story of Reality LA. Many of you were there. It was a a wonderful season for us. It's a wonderful memory that I have of God ministering to our church. And Tim told stories of people who got saved. He told stories of how his church began to pray for really specific demographics across their city. In LA, a city that is drunk on the desire to be famous in Hollywood. And there is a city where the gospel is radically transforming people's lives. Reality LA is growing by the thousands as God is doing a work there as the gospel is proclaimed. But what about Sydney? What about Sydney in 2015? What about here? Do you believe that right now, God could save thousands of people across this city? We have to believe that. And that that's what last week was. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, the famous Welsh preacher, said God can do more in one day than all of our plans and schemes and organizing can do in decades. God can do more in one day than all of our effort over decades. You know, God is not intimidated by Sydney. God is not daunted by the statistics of church decline across our city. God is not intimidated by the growing wave of new atheism. Why? He holds the nations in the palm of his hands. We ought never to forget that, friends. Is our vision too big? Or, yeah, it kind of is. In fact, it's way too big for us, apart from God. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. What we need here at Anchor is not not a human-sized vision of what we could possibly hope to achieve in the lifetime of this church. We need a God-sized vision for what he could do in this city. Not something that we can achieve by our efforts, but something that God has to do himself. That's what we need. But here's the deal. We don't truly want to see an awakening to the gospel in our city. We don't truly want to see a revival here until we're just as happy to see that revival take place in the church up the road, in the church next door, and even in the church that's not in our theological tribe. We don't truly want to see a gospel awakening until we want to see it everywhere in our city. And we're happy for it to happen there and not here. The other thing to say is that a big vision like that, a big vision to see thousands come to know Jesus ought never to make us discontent with the evidences of God's grace right here and right now. Because God is at work in our midst. He is drawing people to himself. He is giving our church a deepening understanding of the gospel. He is making the name of Jesus famous in our city. What we ought to have is not a discontent with God's evidence of grace now, but a holy discontent that we are still seeing people who are facing a Christless eternity and desperately need Jesus. I want to close by reading for you a scripture from Habakkuk chapter 3. It's a prayer of the prophet it says this, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth, which they don't really know what that means, but they think it may be a passionate song. So here's either Habakkuk's prayer or his passionate prayer song to God. This is what he says. Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. He looks back on all that God has done, in all that God has done in drawing his people out of Israel, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, into the Promised Land. He looks at all that God has done by his mighty hand. He says, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again in our time?" That ought to be our prayer. That God would radically transform this city. You know, they say of Australia that Australia has never, never experienced true revival here. We've always piggybacked off the mother, the motherland, England or North America. Would it be the case that God would do a work here? Revival here in our city, in our time. That ought to be our prayer. Let me pray for that right now as the musos come up to lead us in worship. Father God, we have seen your mighty work. We've seen it in scripture, we've read about it, we've seen it in history take place time and time again Lord would you please would you please do that again here and now in our time in our city please revive your work please make your deeds known would you see fit to allow the gospel to be proclaimed here with boldness with persuasion that we would abundantly sow the word. God, would, would you show up and would you point people to Jesus in miraculous ways? And Father God, would you begin to purify your bride? Would you help us to see our desperate need for the gospel every day? That you would transform your church with the gospel and begin to work out from us to this city. We long to see your work. We ask for it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.